Turn with us now, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 2. The book of Romans, chapter 2. As we continue our verse-by-verse study of this book, and as we are come again to verses 11 through 16. Romans, chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. If you didn't bring a Bible with you... Um, that's why we provide them. Uh, they're in the seats in front of you, and we, we do want you to use one. Uh, we want you not to take anything I say at face value. Test everything according to the Word of God. This is infallible. Your preacher is not. And so uh, test everything, and uh, let the Lord teach you during this time. We begin reading in Romans 2 and verse 11. Romans 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, last Sunday evening, we moved our way verse by verse through verses 11 through 15. We took each verse at a time, saw what Paul was saying, and here's what we learned. That all people, everywhere, have an innate knowledge of right and wrong. That God has written His law into the hearts of all people. And all people have broken that law. This is important because it explains why God is just in condemning those people who never heard of the Ten Commandments. It explains why it is right for God on the day of judgment to judge those who have never heard the Christian message, never encountered a Bible, never received on paper or on a scroll or on a tablet divine instructions about how to live. The objection in this passage is, God, how dare you judge people for committing sins when you in your providence never brought into their lives anything that would tell them that what they were doing is sin? How can you hold them accountable on the day of judgment for breaking your law if you never gave them your law and they didn't know better? Paul's answer in these verses is God has given all people a law. And it's written on their hearts. It's in the fabric of their lives. 
All people have an innate sense of right and wrong, and all people have done things that they know are wrong. And therefore, they have no excuse. And on the day of judgment, God will be right to condemn them. Remember, Paul is telling us all this because he wants us to see why it's so important for people to have the gospel. That's the intention here. We must not think that if somebody lives and dies and never hears the gospel, well, then God's going to not judge them on the day of judgment, but say, well, since you never heard, you get a free pass in and, and your sins are taken care of. That's not what the Bible says happens. God owes nobody forgiveness. God owes nobody an opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. He is just to condemn us all. And yet He gave His Son. This message of Christ crucified saves sinners. And He has entrusted that message to His people. And He says, now run with it the uttermost parts of the earth because every day that passes by there are more who have never heard who are perishing in their sin. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church are we going with the gospel? Does the thought of millions falling into hell not burden us? Even today, thousands will perish, having never believed and having never heard while we sit comfortably in our seats here in Rocky Mount. That's last Sunday night's message. This morning, my task is to answer some objections and a question that come from studying this passage. These are common objections and a common question that, that when people, maybe you're studying this at home and you're in your own personal time of devotion and you read this passage and you, you wrestle with it, it's not the easiest passage to understand at first. You have to wrestle with it and think about it to, to understand what Paul is saying. And then once you understand it, suddenly you start having these questions and these, these thoughts. And, or maybe it's with you when you're, you're reading this passage with your family or maybe in a small group Bible study. These are common questions and objections that are asked about this passage. And I want you to, to have some answers. I hope these answers will be helpful. Um, these objections and questions are not new. I mentioned last week C.S. Lewis's famous book, Mere Christianity. He deals with these objections uh, in his book. Very helpful to me. But these objections continue today. So let me try and love you by helping you with this passage this morning. Objection number one goes like this. Isn't it true that when we look at different cultures, when we look at different societies that have not been influenced by Christianity, that have not been influenced by Judaism, but when we look at other cultures and societies, they often have very different ideas about morality. That when we look at the laws that govern this land and the laws that govern this land and the laws that govern this land, oh, they, they contradict each other. 
And doesn't that show, by contradicting each other, that there is no universal human law that we all know is these things are right and these things are wrong? Well, this is the easiest objection to answer because the evidence is just overwhelming. It is true that if you take the laws of Saudi Arabia and the laws of uh, the aboriginal people in Australia, you're going to see some differences. That's, that's absolutely true. But those differences are small in co- comparison to how alike they are. The basic principles are still the same. C.S. Lewis says this, If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Hindus and the Chinese and the Greeks and the Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Can you think of a country where people are admired for running away in battle? Can you think of a, of a people group where a man feels proud for double-crossing the people who have been kindest to him? Lewis says you might as well imagine a country where two and two make five. Everyone knows those things are right or wrong. I'll never forget hearing the story of the Huarani tribe in Ecuador... Uh, you remember Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming. They went to this tribe in Ecuador with the gospel. Uh, in 1956, they made contact with a member of this tribe. They, they called him George. They gave him that name to try and relate to him. Uh, he deceived them, and these five men were speared to death by this cannibalistic tribe in Ecuador as they sought to share the gospel with them. Well, hopefully you know the story of how later that tribe was brought to Christ uh, in part through Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and those around her. Um, One of my professors in college told the story of how when he was younger, uh, he was at a gathering where one of the natives of that tribe who had been converted to Christ was brought to the United States. And he was able to, to hear this man speak. And this man spoke about the life of that tribe before they came to Christ, about their violent, cannibalistic, pagan days, and about the change that happened once they came to Christ. But one of the things that this tribesman said was that even in those days when they would kill their enemies and eat their bodies, they always had a nagging sense in their hearts that what they were doing was wrong. Before they had ever heard of the law of God in the Bible or the message of Christianity, he said, we were suppressing these feelings and thoughts, but we knew that what we were doing was not right. Because of the fall, man does seek to suppress the truths in his heart of what is right and wrong. The Nazis had to suppress these feelings of what is right and wrong as they performed all kinds of atrocities and murdered millions of Jews in the Holocaust. Yet, in the, in the years since then, how many of these former Nazis have, have expressed great dismay and depression, even committing suicide, because they knew that the things they did in those days were wrong? 
They didn't have to be told that. They know that. The same can be said about the genocide in Rwanda. The rampant murder and rape that took place there 15 years ago. And, and now if you, if you listen to NPR, I, I, I only half-heartedly recommend it because they usually have a, a, a non-Christian slant on their news. But, but if you listen to it over the last few years, they've had these interviews with members of the Hutu tribe who committed all these atrocities. And they're talking about how they're going to the people that they heard and asking for forgiveness because they know that what they did in those days was wrong. For a season, they were caught up in the zeal of destroying their enemies, but they could not suppress what they know about good and evil. While the effects of the fall are absolutely evident in the moralities of different cultures, and there will always be differences in in, in laws of different lands, there is a universal sense among all people that some things are just right and some things are just wrong. As Lewis says, different cultures may differ in who you should be kind to. Kind to everyone, kind to fellow members of your nation, or just kind to members of your family. But every person agrees that it's good to be kind. Or, he says, cultures may differ as to whether a man can have one wife or four wives, but every culture agrees that a man can't have any woman he wants. There are differences in opinion about morality, but at the base of it all is a universal agreement that some things are good and some things are not. And this is the law of God written into the hearts of all people that Paul is talking about here in Romans 2. Objection 2. Second objection goes like this. How can you be sure that our inner sense of right and wrong is not a human invention, something that we learn from our parents and our culture? I mean, how can, you, how can you be sure that naturally we have no sense of right and wrong and we only gain that sense of right and wrong by what we're taught, by how we're raised? In fact, maybe God has nothing to do with this at all. Maybe it's our parents or our teachers or our books that teach us morality. Lewis answers that objection saying, yeah, of course we learn right and wrong from others. But that does not mean that it's an invention of human beings and it doesn't mean that it's not still written on our hearts. Friends, we learn two times two equals four from people. But that's not a human invention. If there were no people on planet Earth today, two times two would still equal four. God established that law, not us. And the fact that we teach it doesn't change that. And so it is with morality. God established the laws of math, and He wrote them into the fabric of the world, so also God established the laws of right and wrong, and He wove them into the fabric of this world. And deep down we know this. Friends, are we really to believe that if there was a savage on a deserted island who grew up by himself with no parents whatsoever, no one to teach him anything. And all of a sudden, one day, someone else appeared on that island and burnt down his house and took the things he owned. Do you think he would not know that he had been wronged? Do you think he might think this was an act of love? That this was a good thing? Of course not. 
If someone suddenly appeared on that island and threw an axe at him and chopped his arm off, do you think he would look at that and wonder, is this, is this kindness? No. He doesn't have to be taught by parents or by teachers or by books that, this is, that I've been wronged. He knows in his heart, I've been wronged. How does he know that? Who created that standard in his heart? Paul's answer is that God did that. C.S. Lewis says, Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in right and wrong, you will find the, so, the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, saying he doesn't believe in right and wrong, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll start complaining before you can say Jackie Robinson. I'm not sure why he said Jackie Robinson. Objection three. This is the most common objection in our day to this teaching. And I would warn our younger folks that you will encounter this probably if you go to a a secular university, a state college university. You need to prepare yourself to hear these kinds of teachings uh, when it comes to this subject. Here's the kind of teaching you'll receive there. Isn't it more likely that our inner sense of right and wrong is a result of evolution? Isn't it more likely that human beings have evolved and during our evolutionary history, we have learned to have negative feelings towards things that will hurt us or our species, and we've learned to have positive feelings towards things that are good for us and our species, and we call that morality. Now, as Christians, we would answer that in a couple ways. The main one would be that we take God at His Word. Trusting God's Word more than scientific theories, we we would not agree with evolution. We would affirm what Paul says about God writing the knowledge of morality into our hearts. We would say that's true. And if somebody said, why do you think that's true? We'd say, because God said it's true. But that only works for Christians who believe that. Um, So what if you're talking with somebody who's not a Christian? if you're talking with someone who who doesn't take the Bible at face value and believe it to be what it claims to be? Is there anything that we can point them to to help them see that evolution is not an accurate explanation of morality? I think there is. Because according to evolution, our sense of right and wrong is really just a sense of what is good or bad for us and the continuation of our species. Think about Nazi Germany again. What was going on in Nazi Germany? Hitler and the Nazis bought into a theory of social evolution that said the best way for the species of human beings to survive was to rid itself of all those other human beings who are inferior and have character traits that would harm the species. And so they gathered up all the mentally handicapped. They gathered up the disabled. They gathered up those with with characteristics that they thought were inferior to what the human being ought to be. And they performed science experiments on them and then they exterminated them all in the name of we're... Survival of the fittest. And you know what? That is the morality of evolution. 
The morality of evolution is selfishness. If you don't believe me, go home, turn on the Discovery Channel. Watch an animal show. Why are, these, why are these two animals fighting each other over this mate? Why are they fighting each other over this um, resource? Right? Why is, why is this particular animal disguising itself to hide? Or why is this particular animal about to eat this animal? If you listen to the commentators, they always say, this is an evolutionary trait that has developed over the years to help this animal survive. And these traits are always inherently selfish. And then it comes to human beings, and they say, well, human beings know that selfishness is evil and love is good because of evolution. It's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense. Evolution cannot explain why deep down we know that love is good and selfishness is not. Only the Bible can explain that. That it is God who has determined what is good and what is not. That it is His character which is the standard of good and evil. And He has written a knowledge of that character into the very fabric of our hearts. And though we might suppress it, and though we might distort it, and though we might twist it and it comes out all mixed up, it is there. And on the day of judgment, we will not be able to claim, God, I didn't know what I did was wrong. God will say, you did know. And you know you know. Folks, pointing the finger at God and saying you are treating me unfairly is not a way of salvation on the day of judgment. Christ and Christ alone is the way of salvation on the day of judgment. That's our three objections. What's the question? The question is this. It's the first question that came to my mind when I was studying this passage. This passage is all about God writing his law, the knowledge of his law, into the hearts of all people. But there are other verses in the Bible that say that when a person is saved, when a person comes to Christ, God writes his law on their hearts. For example, listen to Jeremiah 31, 33. God says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Hear this wonderful promise about Christians, folks. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. To which I say, God, w- w- wait a minute here. What's the difference between the way you've written your law onto everybody's hearts and the way you write your law into the hearts of Christians when they when they're saved. Well, the difference is this. From the very moment your life began, God's law was written on your heart in the sense that you had an innate knowledge of right and wrong. But the moment your new life began in Jesus Christ, God's law was written on your heart in the sense that now you have not only the knowledge of right and wrong, you now have a desire and a will to keep that law. Indeed, you now have the Spirit of God to empower you so that you can keep that law. When you are born physically, you know God's law, but you don't have a will to keep it. When you are born again, you not only have the knowledge of that law, you have the will to keep it. 
That which was impossible before you were saved is now possible. And this is why Christians ought to be marked by obedience and good deeds. We can do it now through Christ. I'm just going to show you this in one place. The Bible teaches this all over. We don't have time. Go with me to Ezekiel 36. I hope this will prove it to you. Ezekiel 36. If you want to just jump straight there and you have one of these Bibles, it's page 724 on the Pew Bible. 724. Ezekiel 36. This passage is so important. It parallels the passage in Jeremiah. The one I just read about God saying, I will write my law in your heart and you will be my people and I will be your God. Both this passage and Jeremiah's passage speak about how God is going to save his people. Both speak about God putting something into our hearts and both end saying that God will be our God and we will be his people. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah says it's the law of God that will be written on our hearts. But Ezekiel says the very same thing in a little different way. Beginning in verse 24. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So in Jeremiah, God will put his law into our hearts. In Ezekiel, he'll put his spirit into our hearts. In Jeremiah, the promise is that God will save us by putting his law, his word in us. In Ezekiel, God will save us by putting his spirit in us. There's, a, there's an intimate connection between God's word and God's spirit. We know this from Ephesians and Colossians, don't we? Where, where in the, in, in, we see, Paul says in one place, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and in another, be filled with the Spirit. Paul, which is it? You want us to be filled with the word? You want us to be filled with the Spirit? Well, if you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with the word. If you're filled with the word, you're filled with the Spirit. The point is this. When by grace we are given a new heart, and we start resting in Jesus... God puts the Holy Spirit into our lives. And what does the Spirit do? He causes us to walk in accordance with God's statutes. Oh, did you see that? It was so important in that verse. Verse 27. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. This is the difference. Now that we are saved, God writes His law in our hearts in such a way that we now can keep it. The very thing we couldn't do before. The very thing that made us sinners against God. The very thing that made us failures as people. Failures as husbands. Failures as wives. Failures as mothers and fathers and employees and employers and citizens. Our inability to do what is right. 
our inability to keep God's law. Oh, I know I should be doing that, but I'm failing to do it. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I keep finding myself doing it. That was the slavery to sin we were in. And when we are saved, that slavery is ended and the chains are broken off and the Spirit is put within us and He writes God's Word into our hearts so that we now love this Word and we can keep that Word. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? Salvation is a glorious thing. When we're first converted to Christ, we have no idea how blessed we are. It's only in the years that come afterwards that we begin to discover how much we received on that day. Christian, take courage. Be bold. Do not fear. Do not cower and become a wimp and act as if your sin has you all defeated and you can never be useful to Christ and never be a blessing to others. No, you're right. You will never be perfect in this life, but you can make great leaps forward by the Spirit of God. Not in your own strength, trusting in God's promise and trusting that His Spirit is in you and trusting that Jesus is reigning over your life. He will empower you to fight for holiness. So church, fight. Fight to become more sacrificial. Fight to become more God-centered. Fight to become more missions-minded. Fight to become more radical in your efforts to give yourself as a blessing to others. This is what Christ saved you for. Okay. As we come to the Lord's table in a moment, let me quickly point you to verse 16 of Romans 2. Romans 2, verse 16 is the last verse. In our passage, this verse is about the day of judgment. Speaks about that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is a day that is coming for all of us. And no one will be able to claim ignorance of God's laws They're written on our hearts. Their own consciences, their own thoughts will prove that this is true. People will say with their lips that they don't believe in right or wrong. On the day of judgment, God who judges the secrets of men will point not to what you said, but what he knows was in your heart and your head and in your conscience and in your thoughts. And he will hold all of that as evidence against you to say, you did know. You have no excuse. Your sins were no accident. My sins were no accident. We are guilty. We are deserving of hell. If you cannot agree with that, you cannot have Christ. We are deserving of hell. Notice who the judge is in verse 16. God will judge the world via Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus said this. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Don't you want Him to come? Aren't you ready for Him to come? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Just take a second. Think about all the angels. (laughs) Myriads of, I mean, that just stagger you. Jesus is coming back and all the angels. Heaven empty. Earth, all the angels are here with Jesus. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, that's you and me included, on this day that's coming in our future history. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will turn to those on his left and say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I would ask you right now, do you believe those words? And if so, are you resting in Christ as your hope for salvation? Do you now see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Will you not receive the free gift of salvation, of reconciliation with God, of a new life, of an ability to grow in holiness, an ability to go to heaven by trusting in Jesus this moment. Why would you live another moment refusing the gospel? Why would you think that's wise? Will you not give evidence of your faith by being baptized like Jesus said? Will you not give evidence by joining with this body or a body of believers and basking in the grace that God gives through the people of God? There are some in here who need to do that. Why are you putting it off? What is keeping you from obedience? Do you not trust what the Lord has said is good for you? You should go to Him now and repent and trust. Raise up that white flag of surrender. Give yourself to the Lord Jesus. It is good, it is right, it is the wise thing to do. And I pray that God, by His Spirit, will enable you to do so this very moment. Let's pray.